Good morning. Good morning, ladies. You're back. You came back. I'm so glad. I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad to be with you this morning. Thank you, worship team, for that music. That was just beautiful um, that we could worship God in that way. And thank you for those praises and for the silent praises that we lift up to God so that we can worship him in that way as well. I am Deb Haygood, and last week we began our 16-week study of the book of Isaiah, God's Salvation Symphony. Now, Isaiah, the book, was written by Isaiah, the great prophet called by God. He was called by God, as all prophets are, to give God's message to his people. And last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 6 and we saw God calling Isaiah through a vision. And in that vision we saw God's holiness and we also saw God's love. His holiness is great and equally important is his desire to have a relationship with man, with mankind with you and with me. And we saw um, God calling Isaiah to tell his words to his people. And these were words reminding them of who God is, calling them back to God to uh, repent and to restore that relationship so that they would follow God and he would bless them. But the words were not heeded by the vast majority the words were in, would in fact harden their already very hard hearts. Now I read a quote this week in Halley's commentary and it said this, When a nation sets itself against God, even his wondrous mercy re- results in further hardening. And I think it's the difference between wax and clay. Wax, like candle wax, when it comes in contact with heat, it melts, it gets soft. Clay, on the other hand, when it comes in contact with heat, it becomes harder. And so our hearts are either wax or clay. And when they're wax, they become soft under the heat of sunlight. And sun is spelled S-O-N. But if it's hearts of clay, then they become even harder under the warm light of Jesus. Isaiah had a heart like wax. And when he went before God in this vision, his heart was melted. And he confessed his sin and he received forgiveness. And his life was changed forever. God tells Isaiah, my people's hearts will only become harder. They are like clay. But a few will believe. A few will turn back and follow me. Today we're going to look at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. We're going to look at the first five chapters of Isaiah. And he is a young man during this time. Probably um, Jotham is king. He was the son of Uzziah. Now King Jotham was a fairly good king. He followed God somewhat, not wholeheartedly, but he's considered a good king. A lot of prosperity during his reign, and we're going to see that gets uh, them into trouble. Um, And I've entitled this lesson on your outline... From the courtroom to the vineyard. Now next to that, you're going to want to put in parentheses, sin and judgment. That was my original title. But I thought that seemed a little bleak, so I changed it from the courtroom to the vineyard. But really, it's about sin and judgment. That's what these first five chapters are about. In fact, uh, that's in a large part what the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are about. Sin and judgment. So I thought I'd begin with a little humorous illustration in in case we don't smile anymore for the rest of this lesson. Um, You know this story. You've heard it before. It's the little girl. She's very, very disobedient. She's been very bad. Her mom's had it. And so she says, you go sit in time out. And the little girl stamps over defiant and stands there a minute. And the mom says, sit in time out. And so the little girl sits down. And then she looks at her mom and she says, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. And that is such a picture of Israel. They are confronted with their sin and disobedience and the the for sure punishment that's coming their way. And instead, they're like, I'm standing up on the inside. They are not um, repentant. So we're going to open up chapter 1, verse 1. 
And let me read that uh, first verse. And it says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. It opens up with the vision. Isaiah records divine revelation by seeing a vision. He not only hears the words of God, he sees what is going to happen. And it says concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and he was called to that. And probably he's sitting up on a hill maybe, and he looks out and he sees the city of Jerusalem. And so from Isaiah's vantage point, he sees Jerusalem. But we quickly see that this vision is going to take us, that it's broad, and that um, the scope is breathtaking. Because even by chapter 2, we see that it includes all nations, and it goes on through time to the end times. God's word goes out until its final outcome is the new earth and the new sky. Now, Isaiah's ministry is to Judah, the southern kingdom, and it spans the reigns of these four kings, and then he dies during the reign of the fifth king, Manasseh. And I want to give you just a quick bit of history. Um, We started with that timeline, and this is what we've talked about just now, and we started with the kings. And I want to go back even a little bit farther to the beginning with God calling Abraham. uh, back in the beginning of Genesis. And God calls Abraham and he says, leave your home and your people and come to Canaan. And so he takes his wife, Sarah, and they go to Canaan. And God makes a covenant with Abraham. And this is very important. This is an unconditional covenant with Abraham. God will not break this covenant no matter what happens. And you read this covenant on your verse sheet. Let me get that out. It's Genesis... uh, 12, and we're going to read verses 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, the land here um, that he says, I mean, that great nation here is land. He's going to give them, going to give um Abraham land. And that land is present day Israel. And then he says, I will uh, make your name great. That's descendants. And in another place he says, there'll be as many as the stars in the sky. And he does give them descendants. And he says, I will bless you. And all peoples will be blessed through you. That is a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, who would bless all people by being our Savior. Now his descendants, he has a son, Isaac. And Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And Jacob has 12 sons. The fourth son is Judah. That's important. Remember that. And God changes Jacob's name to Israel. So the 12 sons and their families become the 12 tribes of Israel. So sometimes when you see Israel, it refers to Jacob's name. Sometimes when you see Israel, it refers to Uh, God's people collectively, God's chosen people, his covenant people. The 12 sons and their families end up in Egypt during a famine, and there they live. And over 400 years they become slaves in Egypt, but they also multiply and grow in number until uh, Moses comes on the scene, and they're probably between 2 and 4 million in Egypt. And Moses leads them out of Egypt. God has sent Moses to deliver them from slavery and oppression. And Moses takes them out, and and they're on their way to the promised land. And before they get there, they stop at Mount Sinai, and there God makes another covenant with them. And it's called the Mosaic Covenant. And this is a conditional covenant. And he says, you will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will bless you and protect you and provide for you, and you will follow me and obey me and you will worship me and me alone because I am the only God, the one true God. And he goes on to say, I'm going to give you a law because you will be set apart as holy people worshiping a holy God. And when others see this, they will come to believe in me as well. But if you do not follow me, if you do not follow the holy God of Israel, then you will be punished. God said he would take away his hand of blessing and protection and provision. So finally, they travel on. They get to the Jordan River. They cross over into the promised land. This was the land that God had promised Abraham. Um, we see, read about this in Joshua. And they 
settle the land. The 12 tribes settle the land and they become known as the nation Israel. And at first they're ruled by judges and then they call out for a king. And so God gives them Saul and that's where your timeline begins. And then God gives them King David. And he is from the tribe of Judah, that fourth son. And his son Solomon reigns after him. And then this nation of Israel is divided in two. And the northern kingdom, which has ten tribes, they keep the name Israel. The southern kingdom is made up of Benjamin and Judah. Judah is, is the largest. And so they become known as Judah. And in Judah is the capital city of Jerusalem. And that is where the temple is, and that is where they were to come and worship. And that remains in Jerusalem, in Judah. Judah um, is reigned uh, by Rehoboam, Solomon's son. So David's line stays in Judah. And Solomon, Rehoboam, and then all the kings after that come from the line of David. And that is because God promised that the Messiah would come from the line of David. He promised that to David, that the king that would rule forever, Jesus, would come from his line. And sure enough, if you look in Matthew and Luke, you see that Jesus' lineage can be traced back to David. David, who was from the line of Judah, the son of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. And so you see that Jesus goes back to Abraham, he that would be a blessing to all people. And so Isaiah tells us that his main audience is Judah and the capital city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is also called Zion. So if you see Zion, then know that they're talking about Jerusalem. And let's uh, read verses uh, 2 through 4 here. So just as a little reminder, so we see Israel, it can be God's holy people, or it can be um, the northern kingdom of Israel. For today's lesson, every time we see Israel, it's going to be Judah being a part of God's chosen people. It's not referring to the northern kingdom. So let's read verse 2. And we see, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Okay, the symphony begins. Hear grand music as you read these words, O heavens and O earth. I reared children and have brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey owns his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Now, Isaiah begins um, with using legal language. This whole first chapter here uses legal language. It kind of takes place in a courtroom, and that's how we want to see it. So he begins by calling two witnesses because their law stated, and I've got that on your verse sheet. I'm not going to read it, but in Deuteronomy 19:15, it tells us that they must have two or three witnesses. So God has two witnesses, the uh, heavens and the earth. God is saying, um, my creation will testify that what I am saying is the truth. He's bringing a legal case against his people. And so he begins to list um, their, what they've done wrong, their sin. And he starts out by saying that they are so foolish. They're so confused. Actually, he's just calling them stupid. They're so stupid, they don't even realize I am their creator. I am the one who made them and provides for them and protects them. Even animals, an ox and a donkey, who we don't think of as very bright, they know their master. And it reminds me of a story when um, my grandparents were older. They lived their last years in Arkansas. And they lived in the country. They had um, a few acres, and they had a barn on it. So at one point, my grandfather decided he would get... Uh, he'd go to the sale barn, get little calves and that didn't have a mom, and he would raise them up. And so he had these bottles of milk, and he'd feed these little calves. And I can remember visiting him. I was a young married gal. And I'd hold on to these bottles, you know, and they'd be pulling at these um, bottles, drinking their milk. And, of course, the calves grew up and became big cows. And I can remember going back, and um, my daughter, Rachel, was a year old. And um, Papa said, hey, let's go out and see the cows. We'll show Rachel the cows. Now, my grandmother, you know, she followed us all the way. Don't you let take that baby near those cows? And she's calling out. So we go up to the fence. 
Now the cows are huge. I mean, this is like probably a year or two later, and they are big. And my grandfather stands at the fence, and he begins to call them by name. And they become, then they start running up to the fence. They know my grandfather's voice. They recognize him as the person who took care of them, who raised them up, who fed them, and is now providing for them. And of course, Grandpa, he rubbed their heads, and so did Rachel. Not so with God's people. They did not recognize God as their master, as their creator, as their protector and provider. So Isaiah, like a lawyer, continues on with their offenses. And also, they have rebelled. They are corrupt and evil. They have rejected God. They've turned their backs on the Holy One of Israel. Now, this is strong language that we see here. Harsh language, but it needs to be so because this is a wake-up call to God's people. They don't even realize. They're so foolish, they don't even realize that what they're doing is sin. Sometimes I feel like we're not too far from that. I rationalize my sin. I begin by calling it shortcomings and failures and mistakes, not so bad. We begin to make light of it until pretty soon we don't even realize that we are in sin. This is where um, Judah was at this time. And their sin is so pervasive that it has affected them from their head to their toes. We read that in verses 5 and 6. And then in verses 7 and 8 and 9, we get this picture of this desolation, of the inevitable destruction that was going to come upon them because of their disobedience and their sin. Now, this uh, visual picture here sound, looks like it's taking place right then. It's in the present. But actually, it's probably foretelling a near future event. And that is when King Sennacherib of Assyria comes to lay siege to Jerusalem, to the city of Jerusalem. It's a very difficult and hard time. It takes place in 701 B.C. And we're going to be looking at that in more detail when we get to chapters 36 and 37. And then we come to verse 10, and Isaiah begins to talk about, make a case against those that consider themselves religious. Now, about this time, you can um, picture Isaiah. He's probably standing on the t uh, steps of the temple. He's calling out to uh, God's people, telling them these indictments. And there's some, you know, they've got their arms crossed, and they're thinking, well, he's not talking about me because I follow God. I'm religious. I keep all the law. And so then Isaiah says this to them. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. He goes on to say, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop. Stop doing wrong. Now this is some more strong language. God is saying, I am weary of this. I cannot bear it. I hate it. And this is not hyperbole. Lots of times when we have imagery and poetic language, we have hyperbole, which is exaggeration. God is not exaggerating. God is telling them exactly how it is. Now, mind you, these um, festivals and feasts and the sacrifices, God set that up. That was part of his law. But all of that was to bring them closer to him. It was to worship him. It was to make atonement for their sin. It was to, so that they could fellowship with him. All that part had been forgotten. All they were doing was going through the motions 
carrying out these meaningless rituals without a thought of God, and he is sick of it. And we know that because their hearts are so far away from God, they don't even know what really matters to God. They're not doing anything that would be what, um, would be what God would have of them. And God tells them what that is. Verse 17, he says, Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. What should be happening? They should be seeking justice, encouraging the oppressed, defending the needy, the poor, the widows, and the orphans. And I thought we'd stop just a second and think about our own lives. A question for me, am I getting richer while I disregard the needs of the poor? Am I busy at church getting caught up in religious activity and forgetting what really matters to God, which is justice and mercy and walking in humility? Hosea 6.6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. How do I act merciful in my day-to-day life? How do I seek justice? It reminded me of a time in the past when my children were young. My husband and I decided that we were going to support public schools. And we were going to send our kids to public school and we were going to be involved in public school because we wanted public schools to be good for all children. So I joined the PTA and I volunteered and I did that. And it was so, I wasn't there very long before I'm pretty soon thinking, well, what is best for my child? And I want to do this to benefit my child. You know, what's going to be good for little precious Rachel and Ben. I was forgetting I am there for all the children. I am there for those children that maybe their parents are working and they can't be there. Or maybe they don't have a father in the home. Or maybe their situation isn't good at all. I am there to help the schools be a good place of learning for them. How quickly I would slip back into what what is good for my child. But God um, kept me on track, mainly through the Holy Spirit, working through my husband, Scott. And so I would get back on track and uh, think, I want to volunteer for all the children. It's not about just me and my children. I want to seek justice in that way. And what about pride? Am I resting on my achievements rather than resting in God's peace? Do I trust God to bring what I want and need? Or am I manipulating every situation, you know, doing everything under my own steam? One quote said, God's priority is how you live normal days of life, not how you perform on special days set aside for ritual. Religious ritual without righteous living does not gain favor with God. You have to get your life right to worship right. And that is why confession is so important. Realizing what's going on with me and confessing that to God. And that's why I love Christ Chapel because that's one of their distinctives. They preach the word of God on Sunday so that we can have Monday morning application. It's not about just Sunday. It's about how we live our lives the rest of the week that's important. So let's go on, and in verse 18, we're going to see uh, what has been described as one of the most famous expressions of God's grace in the Bible. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel... You will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God, in his mercy and love, offers them complete pardon if they will return and follow him. He's a lawyer now, remember that, and this is like offering them the plea bargain. He is going to wipe their slate clean. He's going to set their records aside. And it will be as if they had not sinned if they follow him and he will bless them. And it looks like in verse 21 that they don't do that. They don't accept his offer. And so God is now the judge and the people guilty will be destroyed by fire. But once again, 
It's not complete annihilation we see. In verses 26 and 27, we see that there will be redemption. A remnant will be redeemed. A remnant will come through the purging fire of judgment and will turn back to God. And it says Jerusalem will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now this is a picture of the end times when Jesus comes in the millennial kingdom to reign from Jerusalem. And that moves us into chapters 2 and 3 and 4 because they deal predominantly about the end times and then also prophecy of the near future judgment. Um, and so let's look at that. We're not going to read all these verses for time's sake, but I wanted to talk a little bit about them. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we see a picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus is reigning in the millennial kingdom. It's going to be a time of peace, a time of joy. There will not be war. It'll be a time of walking with God and fellowshipping with him. And verse 5, I love this verse. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to pause, and I want you to put your name in where it says, O house of Jacob. Put your name in there. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is a verse for us, to walk with the Lord. Then in verses 6 through 22, we see... um, Near future fulfillment, uh, we also see the far distant end times. And verse 6 tells us that Isaiah sees God abandoning his people. Now this is not because God doesn't love them. It's because they have no use for God. They have become like the pagans all around them. It says that they are um, superstitious like those in the east, and that would be Assyria and the Arameans. And it says they practice divination like the Philistines. That's that country on your map that's to the west. And those divinations mean casting spells and sorcery. It's kind of like trying to figure out what's going to happen with a Ouija board or reading our horoscope instead of following the word of God. They worshipped idols and it tells us they were prideful and arrogant. And what's the result? We read in verse 11. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then in verse 21 we read, they will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? You know, they're trusting in all these things that they can see, things from other countries around them, superstitions. They're trusting in prideful man. And God is saying, I can take away all of that in an instant. Man is just a breath in his nostril. God alone is who we need to trust in. He goes on in chapter 3, and we see um, him talking about how he can take away these things that we put our security in. One is supplies and food and provisions, but it's also people. People, they were trusting in their leadership. And God says, I will take away the leadership. And in verse 2, he lists who that leadership is. The hero, the warrior, the judge and prophet, the soothsayer and elder, the captain of 50 and man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, and clever enchanter. He's going to take away all their leadership. And it goes on to say, all you will have left is children to rule. What chaos that will be. And then I love it, we go on to verse 16. He does not leave out the women. He doesn't leave out the women here. These are probably um, the wives of the leadership, possibly. Let's read what it says here. The Lord says, the women of Zion are haughty. Now I looked up haughty and it says, proud and vain to the point of arrogance, scornful and self-satisfied. So they were guilty of pride as well. The women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery, 
the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and ankle chains and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and the capes and cloaks, the purses and mirrors and the linen garments and tiaras and shawls. I mean, they had it all. They were looking good. Um, they not only had got fine clothes, but they had all the accessories as well. They are accessorized to the tiaras and their purses and perfume. They had everything. Fine clothing and jewelry. And they're walking along. We can almost picture them with their nose in the air. Um, sashaying about, as people say. They had fancy hairdos. Because we care a lot about our hair. Things haven't changed much in 3,000 years. We're pretty much the same. We care about how we look, and sometimes, very quickly and easily, our appearance can lead to pride. How much time we spend on that. And this would be almost humorous, except for how horrific it is when he describes what will happen to them. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Now this is probably referring to the Babylonian captivity, when they would be taken into exile. They would be tied with ropes and led into exile. And they would probably not be very healthy. Their hair was going to fall out. They were going to be bald, maybe sores on their head. Instead of perfumed fragrance, they were going to be a stench. They would have a bad odor. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Now sackcloth, you read that a lot, it was a cloth that was used for mourning because it was a coarse, uh, dark cloth that came from goat hair. So not only was it uncomfortable, but it was very um, unattractive, a far cry from their beautiful, colorful silks and satins. And it goes on to say, um, instead of beauty, branding, and your men will fall by the sword, your wa warriors in battle. And there would be so few men. They would all be widows, and they'd be looking around for um, anyone to save them, to be their husband and save them from disgrace. But there would be few men left. But once again, we see redemption. God doesn't leave it there. There's more. It's not complete annihilation. And so in verse 2, we see, In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Now, the branch is a good um, definition or good word to use for Jesus. The branch of the Lord. Jeremiah also uses that as well. Um, in Jeremiah 33:15, it says, In those days and at that time I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. This branch is a direct reference to Jesus. We also see Jesus calling himself divine in John 15. And so once again, we see a remnant, faithful followers, um, and they will be known for holiness. We see that in verse 3. They will be called holy, and they will receive forgiveness. God will cleanse them. And then we see this great picture of a relationship going on with God. And we see here, it says that the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. It will be a time of peace and joy with the Lord and a time, a pleasant time. And God's presence will be there. And this, um, these references to God with the cloud and the fire, we also see these very same references in Exodus. And I have that on your verse sheet. This is when Moses led the children out of Egypt onto the promised land. And it says, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light. Those same references of God, the Lord Almighty would be in their presence. We see this remnant, always a remnant of faithful followers. So let's go on, and we're going to look at chapter 5. And it is the Song of the Vineyard. Now we have gone from the courtroom, the legal language of chapter 1, and now we see Isaiah in chapter 5 using a parable. He's using a parable and he sings it in a love song to God. He loves God. 
Now, I asked you in your homework, what kind of music did you hear when you read this song? And there were all kinds of answers. In the um, leaders' meeting beforehand, there were all kinds of answers. Classical, ballads, an opera. And for me, it was all country. It was all country. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, because I grew up in Florida. We didn't have... uh, Well, I guess there was country music, but we didn't listen to it. And so when I got to Texas, it took me quite a while to appreciate country music. In fact, I always just called it those She Done Me Wrong songs. And there was something about when I read these verses, it was kind of like that. You know, it was God's people really doing him wrong. And so I picture Isaiah. Now he's standing on the steps of the temple, and he's got a guitar. And he is singing this country song to the people of Judah. And this is what it says. And it's really, it's written in kind of three stanzas. Verse 1 and 2 is the first stanza. And it starts out with um, God talking about uh, his loved one. That Isaiah, talking about Isaiah loving God. God is his loved one. And I just want to make a point here that Isaiah loved God with great passion. With great passion. And so it was easy for Isaiah to identify um, the feelings that God had for this sinful people, the outrage that he felt and the grief that he felt over his holy people, his holy nation called apart, willfully sinning and ignoring him. And so Isaiah sings this love song about God. And so he says here, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one has a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Only bad fruit in this vineyard. And then we see the next stanza. And Isaiah singing this as if um, God was saying these things. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard? Than I have done for it. When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. That's that country part, like she done me wrong and now here's what's going to happen back. I am tearing down the hedges and there's not going to be any more rain or cultivating or anything going on with my vineyard because all I got was bad grapes, bad grapes when I poured in all my love. And then, so yeah, you can see the people and they're kind of, you know, clapping and stomping their feet and listening to this song. And then we get to the last verse, the last stanza. Verse 7 says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So they're sitting all of a sudden, they're thinking, Whoa, wait a minute. Are you calling me the bad grapes? Are you saying I'm the bad fruit from your vineyard? So Isaiah has their attention now, and he begins to go on and detail the sins of the bad grapes to tell them what they have done. And he begins each section. There's six sins, and he begins each one with a woe. And a woe, woe to you, bad grapes, because this is what you've been doing. And I wrote on the bottom of your verse sheet, a woe is a strong exclamation, a warning or threat of impending disaster. So let's look. That first woe is verse 8. It says, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field. Now this is a picture of greed. This is a picture of greed. They are buying land and they're getting rich at others' expense. They don't care who it's hurting in the process as long as they gobble up more and more land. This was greedy and selfish. And God had specific laws about how they were to treat the land and how they were to buy and sell it because this was the promised land that God had given to his people. Then we see in verse 11, the next woe. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night, Till they are inflamed with wine. Now this sounds sort of familiar. We may know people like that. They start drinking early in the morning and they go all through the night and they're so busy 
partying that they totally forget about God. Verse 12 there says, um, they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. I really think that Isaiah is telling them they have totally forgotten about the sovereignty of God, that everything they have is because God has given it to them. But they're so busy partying and drinking that they have totally forgotten that. Verse 18 is the next woe. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. Let it approach. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. Now this was interesting to me, um, but I think what they're really talking about here is defiance. These are the people that are so entrenched in their sin that they have no intention and no desire of changing. They are not repentant in the least. And so they're either mocking God and mocking Isaiah with these words here, or they're saying, God, save us anyway. We're not going to change. We're not going to repent, but save us anyway. God doesn't work like that. God wants a relationship with us. God um, wants a change of heart. And we don't see any change of heart from these people here. You know, sometimes we expect God to save us. We treat him like he's a genie in a lamp. But God wants a relationship with us. He wants us to walk with him and to listen to him and to follow him, not to ignore him and to disregard him and to set him aside until we're in deep trouble. And then we call out for God and expect God to show up. One of the commentaries I read said this, The Lord is gracious, but he is not to be trifled with. Be careful that our attitude does not become like that of those people in verse 18 and 19. When we take for granted the Holy One, the Holy One, our God. Verse 20, we see this woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now these are the people that have really perverted the truth. They've got perverted values. It's um, all upside down. They have lost the moral capacity to judge and distinguish between right and wrong. That seems so familiar to me. It seems so much like what our world is about today. We are blinded to the truth. Sin really leads us to spiritual blindness so that we cannot tell right from wrong. You know, there's so many choices in our lives today. And if we begin to choose something that's wrong and to make light of that and to say, well, it's not so bad, you know, it's really, I could be doing this, but instead, you know, pretty soon we continue to do it until we don't even realize that wrong thing we're doing is sin. Pretty soon we're calling it right and truth and we get so confused. And to counteract that, we need to be in the word because this is our standard. This helps us to see right from wrong. Or we need to be in fellowship with other Christian believers and talking with them, um, listening to them. We need to have mentors or people that will hold us accountable so that when we get off track, they can say, that's not right. That's wrong what you're doing. So that we don't end up with this. Perverted values, constantly um, calling right wrong, good evil, bitter sweet. I think we see that so much in our world today um, that we begin, you know, they, getting money is good. Being assertive is good, even if it hurts those around you. Um, you know, it's wrong to be passive or to do something kind to someone. Um, abortion is a good example. I don't know how you feel about abortion, but we get so, we've, we've turned that right and wrong to think what's right is really a woman's rights. She deserves to decide what to do. And we forget that the important thing is, the right thing is caring about that unborn child. We get our values totally upside down. The Word of God is our standard, and it can help us to stay on track. It can help us to be accountable. And then we see this last woe, verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. 
Now, these are really, this was kind of hard to tell, but these are, this is really corrupt leadership. These are men that are given um, this leadership responsibility to judge, but instead of doing a good job and being heroes in that, instead they are once again drinking, um, taking things lightly, taking bribes, taking money to get people off. They're totally unjust, probably very much oppressing the poor and the needy. And God says, oh, I skipped 21, I just realized. Let's go back. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Okay, y'all, that's the Lord talking. That, that is something that I can be very guilty of, becoming overconfident in myself. I don't know if y'all do that, but, you know, I'm walking along and pretty soon I start thinking I'm pretty smart and I'm doing a pretty good job. And that's where these people were. And that's a terrible place to be. I sometimes think that God orchestrates difficult situations to come into my life so that I can realize I'm not really all that smart and I'm not really all that capable. And without God, I am totally helpless. I need God. I need his wisdom and his power and his strength. I'm so glad I didn't skip that. That was important. And then 22 are the, is the corrupt leadership that we see there. And God finally says, enough. This is enough. Enough of um, this. Woe to you. And he says that uh, in verse 25, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. And then it says how he's going to do this. And this is probably reference to Assyria and to Babylon. These godless countries, are under his control and under his power. And that God can even use godless countries as his instrument of discipline. And it's easy for him. It says he whistles and they come quickly. God is in control. He is sovereign over all, over the leadership, even the leadership in bad, um, godless countries. So what does this mean for us today? I want to take just a couple minutes here um, to talk about what this means for us, this application. Because if we read all this and we um, walk away, then we become like those people that he lists here in verse 24 that says, they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty. They have spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Their foundational problem was they had turned away from God. They had spurned the word of the Lord. They had rejected it. We do not want to be guilty of that. We have studied this word today. What is the application for us? What will God have for us after we study this word? Now, um, there's some general applications, but I would like for you each week as you study the word to pray and ask God to specifically give you applications. What ways does he want you to change? What ways does he want you to follow him? Um, and, and that's what's important about this. So you pray and you find out. I've got a few things here. Um, first, I want to say that you are the remnant. You are the remnant. If you believe in Jesus today, then you are the remnant. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus when we trust in him. He made atonement for our sin. That's really what that song was about, um, with the crimson and white as snow. Jesus has redeemed us. And from that moment on, we are bound for heaven. We are glory bound. Um, John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. We have eternal security in Jesus Christ. And we are heaven bound. Now we don't do everything perfectly. We don't follow God perfectly. Even Paul says, I don't follow God perfectly. We see that in Romans 7, 19. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And that's why confession is so important. We need to confess those things that are against God, that we're not doing right, so that we can remain in good fellowship with the Lord and grow and follow him. Psalm 32, 5 says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So confession is good and necessary for our relationship with our Heavenly Father so that we can grow closer to Him. 
Isaiah gives us plenty to think about in these verses that we read today. Maybe you want to consider how God has shown compassion to you recently. Maybe you want to um, think about something you need to confess and then go to God and confess it. Pray about specific ways that you can seek justice for the oppressed or um, how you can help the needy. I've written a couple um, applications for myself on here. I want to thank God that I'm a child of his. I love the verse, 1 John 3, 1, that says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, children of God. I want to thank God that I'm his child. And I want to praise God for his justice and mercy and ask specifically how I can be just and merciful. I want to confess the sin in my life. And then I want to ask God to help me walk in his light. And I wanted to close um, by reading Isaiah 2.5 again. And I want you to look at that with me. I want to remind us that we don't want to be like the little girl that is standing up on the inside. We want to have hearts of wax. Isaiah 2.5 says, Come, Deb. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Heavenly Father, you are our Father and we are your children. And I thank you for that. That uh, humbles me and it makes me grateful. And I just thank you and I praise you, Lord, for who you are. Father, you are the Holy One. You are the Holy God, righteous. And I pray, Father, that all of us in this room might read these words. And, Father, that we might be drawn closer to you. Lord, I pray if we need to examine our lives in some way, if there's some sin that we don't even realize that we're all about, Father, that you would point that out to us, that we might confess it and follow you more closely. Father, I pray that you would make us people that are just and merciful and humble. Father, I pray for these ladies in this room as they study your word. Father, may it go deep into their hearts. May it change us. May others see that we love you, the holy God, that you love us. And, Father, may others come to know you because of that. Work in our lives, Lord. Father, our hearts are like wax. Melt them. We love you, Lord. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus.